Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and workers' stories. We bring you great news of the defeat of Coles at the Fair Work Commission in regards to an agreement which Coles made with SDA, the retail union, which failed the boot test, or the better off overall test, when it comes to new agreements between employers and employees. The agreement, which has been touted as the removal of penalties by stealth, was appealed by Coles employee Duncan Hart, supported by Josh Cullinan and Barrister Siobhan Kelly, with the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union, the AMIEU, also appealing the agreement. It has been a long haul against a major corporation. This victory can potentially help to topple the Tower of Profits, which retail and fast food workers have been contributing to their bosses' pockets. I spoke to Josh Cullinan on Tuesday, May the 31st, the day the Fair Work Commission made its deliberation. This morning, the Fair Work Commission full bench issued a decision in the Heart and uh, Meat Workers Union appeal against the Coles Agreement that uh, started way back in July last year. They determined that the uh, that they weren't satisfied that the agreement passed the boot. In other words, the Fair Work Commission full bench has determined that the uh, that the agreement that Coles and SDA made uh, failed the better off overall test and that there were employees that were uh, not better off overall under the agreement. They uh, gave short shrift to most of the arguments put that um, by Ernst & Young professionals that some um, enormous value had to be given to uh, provisions which simply didn't have that value. So in the end, they uh, the Fair Work uh, full bench determined that um, the agreement didn't pass the better off overall test. Those other elements, whilst they have some value, that value isn't large. What they were arguing was that uh, certain uh, what they call flexibilities that were not monetary were uh, equal to the amounts that people were receiving in penalties, etc., in the original award, right? That's right, that's right. That, they went quite to quite bizarre extremes. We had one uh, one Ernst and Young staffer consultant make claim that Coles should be able to claim half the future earnings because of a worker because they um, studied their degree while they worked at Coles. Um, there was no real provisions, which there was no study leave, no paid study leave or payment of course fees or anything like that. But she uh, just reckoned um, a thought bubble, um, a brain fart that uh, these things could be given these immense values, and then they used that to try and offset the gross reductions in penalty rates um, and overtime rates that cost these workers thousands and thousands of dollars. So they've given much of that very short shrift. They do accept that some of those things have some value, but they make the point that when compared to the award, those provisions are generally small in value. And then they went on to say that um, for those extra things that that we were just mentioning, those things which were esoteric in value, that those things certainly couldn't be given the values that had been given by uh, the Coles witness. Um, And whilst it's appropriate to take those things into account, they said that the value is not easily quantifiable and is much lower than Ms Rowland has estimated. So again, um, it's unfortunate it's taken this long, 
but the Fair Work Commission has uh, made it absolutely clear, and their words were that we are not satisfied that a consideration of all benefits and detriments under the agreement results in each employee and each prospective employee being better off overall. It follows that we're not satisfied the agreement passes the boot. It's what we've said for the last nine, ten months. What they've done now is they've offered Coles the opportunity over the next ten days to reflect on whether they would be prepared to offer an undertaking. They've proposed two different things. One is that, that Coles could give an undertaking that those that have a higher proportion of their hours at penalty rate times, um, they could have a reconciliation and get paid the higher of the award or the agreement for that work period. Um, alternatively, they've uh, something that's been happening more prevalently recently is an idea that they limit the number of penalty rate hours that could otherwise be worked by an employee. That seems bizarre in my mind. That well, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is that's actually doing the work, does it? Matter. Well, that, that's right. But it would effectively restructure an entire business so that those who have contracts to work on Saturdays and Sundays would only be permitted to work a small fraction of their hours at those times. So those kinds of arrangements really haven't been um, given the proper scrutiny they need. Um, it would be very surprising if Coles went down that pathway. I think they'd have to restructure their entire business. But they may very well offer an undertaking around paying via wages worth tens and tens of millions of dollars a year to the lowest paid workers. In the alternative, if they don't propose an undertaking by 10th of June, then the agreement... Uh, will be quashed and all the workers will go back to the old agreement and no doubt at that point many of those workers will want to uh, terminate that old agreement, go on to the modern award and receive the uh, pay and arrangements that uh, that they're entitled to as under the very minimum standards modern award which would see massive wage increases for the majority of Coles workers. Does that mean that uh, people could be uh, open to getting uh, some uh, back pay? Well, there is a small group of staff, largely meat workers. If the agreement is terminated, that small group of staff would go on to higher wage rates and they would be entitled to back pay from June last year, July last year. That's the only group. Unfortunately, the structure of these laws see um, that the old agreement come into effect and that is uh, equally a substandard agreement that that shouldn't pass the boot. That agreement would need to be terminated so that the award comes into effect. So no, unfortunately, these arrangements have the force of federal law and under that arrangement they stop these workers being entitled to something else as a matter of course that would have to uh, rely on the termination of the agreement of the old agreement to be able to have the benefit of the, of the award terms. Now this seriously has been a David and Goliath battle where uh, you and Duncan Hart and uh, members of the beat workers as well as Siobhan Kelly the barrister who worked for free I mean, you guys uh, decided that you were going to fight this, uh, but they could have got away with this, couldn't they? Oh, and they have, and they have. Unfortunately, every other major retailer and fast food um, company in Australia has these kinds of deals, and time and again they've gotten away with it. So we had really quite an outstanding decision made by Duncan Hart to appeal this. Um, He's obviously had the support from Siobhan and I, and um, the meat workers appealed shortly after as well. Um, but his preparedness to do that has shone a light on um, on the arrangements that are now actually um, have permeated fast food and retail in Australia. And we're estimating a half a million workers are losing 300 plus $300 million a year or more um, on these dodgy, dodgy EBAs. So uh, this is obviously, it's just the start. There's been the reports about McDonald's and 
every other major fast food and retail outlet is in a very similar situation. They certainly are getting away with it elsewhere and uh, Duncan and the meat workers have been able to stop it here. They would argue, I guess, that... Uh uh, you know, our businesses will fall away if we don't have these lower pay rates. Do you think that that's a credible argument? No, I don't. And, and I think it comes down to um, the structure of what's been put in place. On one hand, they will; uh, these companies will rely on the Fair Work Commission, as we saw McDonald's do, rely on their assessment that, that it's better off. And, and on the other hand, try and argue that, it, well, if in fact it's not better off, there's some other argument that, that should come into being some some fundamental where business won't survive argument. It's absolute nonsense. We're talking here, you know, Coles and the other Wes Farmers um, organisations, so Kmart, Officeworks, Target, Bunnings, they all have these kinds of deals. That organisation makes billions of dollars a year in profit. Here we're talking about, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars that's being lost from workers' pay packets. Um, they can certainly afford it. They may make decisions about their businesses, like my local fish and chip shop um, has to. When that fish and chip shop is open on a Sunday, they pay their workers 50% penalty rate. If they're casual, they get a 75% penalty rate. Unfortunately, McDonald's gets away paying a much, much lower wage on a Sunday. So, in fact, I see this as as, um, bringing back equity to some of these arrangements which allow these enormous companies to drive our local businesses to the wall. And rather than everyone copying penalty rates cuts, um, really what this is about is those companies that can afford it paying their fair share. 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3CR. When the federal budget came out with the election hot on its heels, a lot of what was in the budget was lost in the rush. The Electrical Trade Union, the ETU, looked at the fine print and saw that before the Turnbull government went into caretaker mode, they had put in the budget a handout of millions of dollars to employer groups to provide apprenticeship training, alternative delivery pilot program. Confused? I spoke to Mark Burgess, ETU National Apprenticeship Officer, to find out what this means for future apprentices. Basically, they've delivered uh, $4 million to two employer groups, um, which was on the eve of the election campaign the day before uh, Parliament broke up. It's a pilot program, but they're looking at ways to basically reduce the quality of training, we believe. Uh, Things like institutional upfront training, which will create a disconnect between theoretical and practical training skills. Um, And we feel this will uh, reduce the ability of apprentices to learn while they work, um, resulting in a less skilled workforce. So what they're really doing is deciding to change the whole method of training young people in apprenticeships and getting employer groups to be the ones who actually supply the training. Is that correct? Yeah, that's our understanding of it. There's been two, there's two employer associations that have been named. Um, we're not sure how the decision was made to give them the funding in the first place. Uh, everyone I've spoken to in the industry, including unions, training advisory boards, regulators, uh, TAFEs, uh, none of those industry stakeholders were consulted, so we're not sure about how they came with the decision in the first place. 
So it's the Master Builders Australia and the National Electrical and Communications Association. They're the two groups, employer groups, right? That's correct, yes. And uh, what we're talking about is uh, things like uh, not consulting with the young people or with unions or with the vocational training sector at all with a, a system that they call... Uh, alternative approaches to deliver apprenticeship training outside of the traditional trade training models. Is there a reason for why the traditional training models aren't working? Uh, to be honest, our trade apprenticeships in Australia are some of the um, best in the world. They're world-renowned and they are working at the moment. There's some Probably completion rates are a bit low in some sectors, um, but there are ways to address those barriers, like readiness assessment tests, preparing people for their apprenticeship, that kind of thing, on-the-job mentoring, and that kind of thing. But, but this pilot program won't, we believe, address any of those issues. So, so is, do you think this is a little bit uh, part of the ideology of privatising everything? It is, to be honest. Um, I mean, we've seen TAFE put on a level par with private RTOs and compete for funding uh, when they have to deliver so much more community to the community. So, yes, it's all part of that um, ideological belief. If people who are actually on the coalface and part of actually doing the work aren't actually part of the training, except for employer groups... What does that mean for the future of young people's employment in Australia? We think um, this pathway that they're trying to create will create a barrier to securing apprenticeship. And what it will do, it will shift the cost. Uh, right now under the award system, employers have to pay for TAFE fees and uh, textbooks and things like that. But what this institutional delivery of upfront training will do, will shift the cost from the employer onto the, uh, the apprentice or the parents of the apprentice and it will make apprenticeships only accessible to those that can afford them. Right, and then there's this other aspect which is uh, removing uh, people from hands-on work to a lot of classroom work. You've got a problem about that, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. If training is delivered institutionally, then what it will do, it will create a disconnect between the theoretical skills that the apprentices need to learn and the practical training that they're taught on the job. So they go hand in hand together. And, um, you know, it's a high-risk licence trade and it should be treated as such. It's, if you want vocational outcomes that are going to skill productivity for the future, then they go hand in hand together. You can't separate the two. Ultimately, there is a big push towards uh, changing the working landscape in Australia away from uh, there being any consultation with workers themselves. I mean, that's the attack on unions is an example of that. But, and t putting it straight into the hands of employers, as if, uh, as if they're the only people who are involved in actually the productivity of a country. The ETU has been um, involved in uh, trying to uh, get people to be aware of these changes. What's going to happen around these... Uh, I mean, you know, going straight into an election and people not even ex being uh, aware of how they're influencing the future of the country without... And they're in caretaker mode. I mean, what, what, what's the union thinking that it needs to do? 
Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are in caretaker mode at the moment, but what we've got to remember, this this election has been fought on a double dissolution election because the Senate rightly rejected the building code and the ABCC and things like that. But yet, in the last three weeks of the campaign, we haven't heard either of those things mentioned. Um, but what those things will do, the building code and the ABCC, the Australian Building Construction Commission, will restrict the number of apprentices on jobs because we won't be allowed to put any ratios enforcing apprentice employment. Um, RDOs will be gone, things like that. Workers will have no right to silence, including apprentices. If they stand up for something, if, if something is unsafe on a job site and an apprentice gets called in to, with the ABCC to be interrogated, then they won't have the right to, to silence. And if they do, they may face up to six months in jail. So basically they're turning working in Australia into a kind of a, a war scene, really? Believe it or not, yes, they're trying to um, divide the classes, working class and uh, the upper echelon of society. Hmm. Okay, thanks very much for your time and uh, let's hope that uh, people will have their eyes wide open when it comes to the future of the country. Thanks, Annie, appreciate it. Bye. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. Since the new secretary, Lou Kilakari, took office at the Victorian Trades Hall, certain initiatives such as the Women's Unit have been part of bringing more workers to the table to discuss issues that affect them. I spoke to Lisa Heap, the women's lead organiser for the Women's Unit. The Trades Hall uh, Council, about September of last year, set up a new women's unit, um, which is very exciting. There's myself and three other organisers in the team. And we're focused on advancing the interests of working women in Victoria within the trade union movement and obviously also within society and the community. So we're focused on getting the issues that are important to working women up the agenda and out into public policy and the actions of the unions. You've just come back from Wodonga, haven't you? Yeah, we've had a discussion, a great discussion with about 17 women up in Wodonga from different uh, from different sectors, including the community sector and disability area and uh, the NUW's members in the um, housing and warehousing area, um, AEU members, teachers and uh, academics as well from the NTU. And what we were doing there was we were talking to them about what their needs were, what was happening for them inside and outside of work, and what what action they'd like to see taken in relation to the concerns that they have, particularly as working women. And we asked them to think about the actions that they can that they'd like to see taken, and also what they want to do for themselves. So that's a really hard conversation because you can always talk about the issues, but it's very difficult sometimes to actually work out the solutions. So we ask them what things that they can do about the problems they have, what things their workplaces can do, what things the unions can do, what they'd like to say to government about what it can do. And this is part of a process that we're calling Raw Chats, Women's Rights at Work. And we're taking that around the state, everywhere we're going. Yeah. Yeah, right. So uh, that's actually a community-based model, isn't it? Yeah, we work from a model of empowerment or community development, which many people would be familiar with. And that is by saying we would like to hear the voices of the women and what they want and what they need before we plan our action and the support that we can give them. So we're going out on the ground and listening 
And then from there, we will draw what we can do, what actions we can take forward, whether it be into the unions, whether it be to government or whether it be back into the workplaces. Mm, so that's a, a policy-based uh, um, level uh, concern. But you've also run things like uh, uh, delegate support, don't you? Yeah, we do. We um, we run a great program out of um, Victorian Trades Hall, and that's called the Anna Stewart Memorial uh, Project. And it's been running for many, many years now, and it runs across the country. But in Victoria, we, we run it out of Trades Hall. And that's a leadership development model for union activists and delegates. So the women who come through that program spend two weeks working either in their own union or in another union and working with Trades Hall about learning what it is to be um, on that side of the equation, learning uh, what it looks like in the union office, going to meetings, um, making recommendations about how the union can empower more women um, that are members of their unions. And it's basically a leadership development program for activists and delegates who want to take the next step. It's really important, isn't it? Because it's really hard to stand up. It's not that hard to recognise when there's a problem, but it's really hard not to just internalise it. So this is one of the reasons why this support works for people. I think that's right. I think uh, from what I've been hearing from the women, whether it be in the Anna Stewart program or through our Raw Chats, I mean, they are very good at articulating what the issue is. They talk about, like, they name it quite clearly. It's sexism, it's sexual harassment, it's, it's those sorts of things. They're quite clear on what the issue is. But often they feel quite vulnerable uh, to raise those issues, particularly if they're one out. And all of our strategies are about working to help them identify the collective that they can work in to make a difference. So uh, connecting them with other women who might want to work with them on that issue, connecting them to their union who who can help and assist them, uh, connecting them to uh, women across unions and women across different industries. And it's a really powerful thing when women talk to women about what's worrying them and they come up with some great solutions. And that's the thing, you know, that thing about, say, uh, sexual harassment, for example, in our society. I've heard people say this and I've heard women say this, you know, they're just, they're just not tough enough. You know, they should be able to deal with it themselves rather than there be a collective response. I think that's a really important point that you've just made. Um, quite often... Even public policy drifts into those concepts of capacity building of the individual woman. So we'll give them mentoring, we'll give them development, we'll coach them and those sorts of because things. Because there's some weakness in them. Well, yeah, an underlying presumption is that there's a weakness in them. but And also the underlying presumption is that through that, that individual can find their way through what we know is a system and structure that's biased and historically and systemically um, gendered against women. So it's really problematic if the solutions are about focusing on the individual woman and her capacity building. We do some of that, but most of what we do is we talk about the structural changes that need to take place, the cultural changes that need to take place, and how women through working with men and women can make a difference in workplaces so that everyone achieves equality, men and women. In, through our raw chats and going around and talking to the women, um, certainly one of the major themes that's coming out is that whole thing that happens uh, around the fact that women still wear the, the major burden of caring responsibilities, particularly for young children in our community. And this is not to say that that's not an important job to have. It's a, it's a, a significant important job and one that many of those women relish. I think their comments are they don't see why they have to, for example, take a step back and not be in managerial roles just because they have small children. Uh, they don't see how the organisations cannot uh, understand that flexible part-time work is 
is something that's very manageable and that to keep a committed, skilled worker, that's a great thing to do. Yeah, and so that enters the pot of the discussion, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and um, you know, and they also, you know, say, you know, <laughs> just even simple cultural things, they, they'll talk to you about the fact and tell you that they looked at differently. They looked at as less loyal, um, less committed to their work because they also have responsibilities outside of work. And, you know, this is a really... It's really damaging for women, but it's damaging for men as well. Increasingly, men want to have more time with their children and be part of their their um, children's lives. If it's we, a lack of balance, isn't if it? If we're sending signals that say you, 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 you have to make a choice between career and family, then they're putting in a very difficult position. And the cultural signaling for men as well is as bad as it is for women, is that you'll be looked down upon if you do these things. And that's just not not where we need to be in 2016 and beyond. Do, do you find that uh, women in the country areas particularly uh, find it almost uncomfortable or unusual that uh, you'll be setting up discussions around supporting women? No, actually, we're getting a great response. We've been so far out to Terelgan and to Wodonga, and we're going uh, next week to Ballarat. The response we're getting is it's really great to... Um, get women together. The biggest response has been the surprise that they have when they're women who don't know one another and they work in different workplaces and even in different industries. Um, They're surprised about how common their concerns are and their experiences. And they get a lot out of actually just sharing that, oh, it's not just me, Um, it's going on elsewhere. It's sort of a moment where they go, they're a bit sad about that. But also there's a moment where they actually really identify with one another. And, um, you know, we've been invited back immediately to Wodonga to do some more work up there. So that's been really exciting for us. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're going to create a whole calendar of events. Yeah, we've been um, working, uh, we've been working since September of last year to create events, not for the sake of doing the events, but for creating the opportunity for women to come together and engage. So we had our Women's Rights at Work or Raw Fest um, around International Women's Day this early this year. And we've got our um, women's conference coming up actually in on the 7th of June at Trades Hall. And that conference is focused on hearing what women around the state have been saying and planning the actions that women want us to take. So it's a really active, oriented towards women making decisions about themselves and what they want to see happen. So we're looking forward to that being a great day. So does that mean that any any woman can join up to come to this? Yeah, absolutely. If you're a union member, go via your union. If you're not a union member, we you can sign up through our website, which is weareunionwomen.org.au and um, come along as a community activist in that space and, um, yeah, be part of that conversation about what women want and what people, women need and how we can go about getting it. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Josh Cullinan, Mark Burgess and Lisa Heap for talking to us today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.